It's Wednesday, August 14th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Amid the second deadliest outbreak of Ebola in history, doctors and scientists have been running a clinical trial of new drugs in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Two of the experimental treatments have been so effective that the trial was cut short, and some are saying that Ebola is now curable. Jamie Ducharme, health reporter for Time Magazine, joins us for what we know. Next, the Trump administration has decided to delay imposing more tariffs on laptops, cell phones, and a wide range of other products made in China. President Trump said they delayed tariffs because of Christmas, so that consumers would not face higher prices for the holidays. David Shepardson, reporter at Reuters, joins us for more. Finally, millennials are struggling at work. Many of them aren't engaged, and at least 60% are open to new job opportunities. Part of the problem is that expectations are unrealistically high, and they want career advancement in months versus years. Tess Brigham, psychotherapist and contributor to CNBC, joins us for how to lose the I hate my job mentality. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Other two drugs brought fatality down to 34% for MAB114 and 29% for RGN-EB3. So that's a pretty significant difference and a significant enough one that health officials thought these should be the two drugs that they are, you know, leading their response with. Joining us now is Jamie Ducharme, health reporter for Time Magazine. Thanks for joining us, Jamie. Thanks for having me. There, we're a year into an Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, and there has been an experimental drug trial that was going on, but things have been going so well, they're actually cutting it short. There's these two drugs specifically that are having really high success rates uh, that they're, they're calling it off and they're going to move on to, to another phase of this. Tell us a little bit about what's going on right now. Sure. So drug trials are typically cut short for one of two reasons. Either the drug appears to be so ineffective that it's unethical to keep giving it to people or the reverse. It appears to be so effective that it's unethical to not give patients this therapy if it's available. Um, And luckily, it was the latter of those two situations in the DRC. These two drugs, which have the very scientific names of MAB114 and R. EGNEB3 appear to be working so well that health officials decided they should just be giving these two drugs to as many patients as they could, as opposed to the other two drugs that were also included in the study. The trial began last November, and it had four drugs total that they were experimenting with. One of them was ZMAP, which was kind of the standard for helping to treat Ebola. Um, So uh, up until now, that was kind of the gold standard, and now we have these two new drugs that are are doing a lot better. Tell us how well they've been working. Uh, Share some of the numbers with regards to like the fatality rates and how it affected that. Sure. So yeah, as you mentioned, um, ZMAP has been used before, and there have been previous studies that show it's effective, um, as well as the fourth drug in this trial was an antiviral. Um, And those drugs were not bad. They both reduced fatality so the the overall fatality rate in the outbreak right now is about 67%. Um, and ZMAP and the antiviral, which is called remdesivir, brought fatality down closer to 50%, a little bit lower than that, actually, which is quite good. But the other two drugs brought fatality down to 34% for MAB114 and 29% for RGN-EB3. So that's a pretty significant difference and a significant enough one that health officials thought these should be the two drugs that they are, you know, leading their response with. 
And the next step in the clinical trials is to just compare these two drugs against each other. Correct. So all patients who are still enrolled in the trial will be given one of those two drugs randomly. And then in addition to that, patients who just seek care at Ebola health centers throughout the Congo will also have access to these drugs. I mean, it's been a dangerous time out there. This is the second deadliest Ebola outbreak. And there's been a lot of things involved to make that case worse. There's a lot of distrust among the locals. There was a lot of people trying to push out health workers and, you know, tell tell the locals there not to trust them. So there's been a lot of stuff going on. But this also also has the potential to change how how we handle future outbreaks uh, before they wouldn't set up these types of clinical trials right where an outbreak was happening. But that's that's all changing now. Yeah, so the idea of doing this kind of randomized clinical trial in the middle of a public health emergency is actually pretty new. Previously, the the thinking was kind of, you know, if you're in the middle of an outbreak, you should just be giving people drugs wherever you can because you don't want to potentially withhold treatment from people. But this study provides some pretty compelling evidence that you actually get better results when you do study it in this way because you learn what's effective and then you can give that drug to people as soon as you have that compelling evidence versus kind of a more haphazard approach where perhaps you treat some people effectively, but you don't actually know which drug is working better. Do we know how these drugs are so effective this time around? How do they work on helping to cure Ebola? Because that's the word that's being thrown around right now. Health officials are saying that Ebola is no longer incurable, that you can come and get this treatment and you have a higher chance of getting better. Basically, in conjunction with supportive care like fluids, you know, proper nutrition, helping people stem some of the symptoms of Ebola. I don't know if I would go so far as to say it's a cure, but it can be a very effective therapy um, that certainly saves a lot more lives and kind of standard supportive care like you're seeing out in the field. The MAB114, which is the more effective of, of the two drugs, was actually they got an antibody that was isolated from the blood of a survivor from a 1995 outbreak, and they've been using that to make this new drug. So, you know, it's already an antibody that's kind of working against the Ebola virus. And I mean, it's proven to have a lot of success. So, I mean, it's just interesting to see how this thing has developed. I mean, it's such a deadly virus and it happens so quickly. I mean, it's a matter uh, uh, it's only a matter of a short time before somebody can die from this. And, and, you know, they're saying, you know, with these drugs too, it's, you can get infected and die quickly, but you can also get healed quickly from it now with, with these, the possibility of these two new drugs. Yeah, exactly. There was a time when getting Ebola was more or less a death sentence. There was very little the doctors could do. And it's still obviously a very severe disease and, and one that's difficult to get under control. But with results like these, as well as some very promising results out of vaccine trials, which would help to prevent Ebola transmission in the first place, I think there's a lot of reason for hope. Jamie Ducharme, health reporter for Time Magazine. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Your business was dead. And I put a little thing called a 25% tariff on all of the dump steel all over the country. And now your business is thriving. Joining us now is David Shepardson, reporter for Reuters. Thanks for joining us, David. Thank you. The U.S. has decided to delay imposing a 10% import tariff on laptops, cell phones, video game consoles, and a few other products that are made in China 
This is an abrupt pullback from the rhetoric that the president had been giving uh, on trade with China. And uh, the president said it's all about Christmas. He didn't want the consumers to face a lot of these prices come holiday time. Right. And I I think there's some debate in terms of how much this would affect Christmas sales, in part because a lot of retailers are pre-buying or already have most of the Christmas inventory, say for you know, some hot-selling items like certain toys and other items. But but there's no question that the administration has been very reluctant to impose tariffs on consumer-facing goods, especially you know big-ticket items like iPhones, where a 10% price hike would be significant and consumers could feel that. So you know I, I think it's really going to be interesting to see what, if anything, did China agree to do in exchange for this. The president tweeted today and made it sound like China was going to buy more U.S. agricultural products in response. And I think the other interesting dynamic here is that with this abrupt shift, it was only 12 days ago that the president said he was going to impose these tariffs on $300 billion for their goods. Will China feel emboldened to to hold out, to not make a deal, part because of the perception that the administration is extremely nervous about imposing tariffs that could affect consumers before uh, next year's election? Right. I, I think uh, I read somewhere that people aren't feeling very optimistic that a deal will be made before the next election. So if they can kind of hold out, you know, they might have a new uh, person to negotiate with. Uh, you know, who knows what what their motives are going to be behind that. As time has gone on, you know, both sides have become more dug in. And it's not just about even making a deal at this point, but about saving face and how would a deal play in China domestically. So, no, I think I think it's become increasingly unlikely that that there will be a deal. Now, it's certainly possible you could see some sort of truce. Uh, these tariffs are obviously hurting China as well. I mean, both economic data suggests they're, they're hurting both sides to a fairly significant account. You know, yes, the U.S. has seen a, a marginal increase in tariff revenues as a, as a result of this. It's also paying out billions of dollars in new subsidies to U.S. farmers to make up for the, the lack of uh, sales to China. Yeah, the Apple other- stock went up 5%. You know, right. It added $50 billion to its market cap in, in a matter of a couple of minutes. That's exactly what I was just going to bring up. The yeah. seesaw effect that we get <laughs> from from the rhetoric and then from, you know, hey, we're going to impose tariffs. The, you know, the stock market takes a dip. Uh, we're going to delay <laughs> the tariffs. The, you know, we're... It, it soars up again. So we're, we're kind of uh, facing the same thing with our stock, stock market. Right. It's not just about the market. It's about it's about these companies, right? I mean, so I, I cover a lot of issues involving the automakers, and they have been facing two and a half years of extreme uncertainty, right? I mean, will there be a, a NAFTA? Will there be a new NAFTA agreement? Will the new NAFTA actually take effect? What about currency? What you know? And so you have all the, the all this uncertainty for these companies, and a lot of Analysts suggest that this is depressing business decisions by by companies because in, in an uncertain environment they're more reluctant to uh, to make big investments. Analysts are, are raising the forecast of a of a worldwide slowdown or a U.S. recession. The, you know the Fed has already cut interest rates once, and the odds are rising that there could be two more interest rate cuts before the end of the year, given the volatility from ongoing trade battles. And remember, really, none of these trade battles are are sewn up, right? The Korea trade deal has not been finalized. There's still Brexit. The U.S. still has to reach a deal with the U.K. if if they do leave the EU. There's still the EU trade negotiations. There's Japan, where they're aiming to reach a deal with them before, you know, by next, next month. 
So, and then in USMCA, the new NAFTA, it's still deeply uncertain whether that will get done. And remember, in just a matter of months, <laughs> Washington's going to pretty much stop doing much sub- substantively, at least legislatively, as uh, as the entire attention turns to uh, to the campaign. Right. And I mean, and that's a hugely important factor. Uh, you know, there's recession fears coming. People mm-hmm. are, are praising the dis- this decision to delay these tariffs. But, you know, if the country falls into a recession, obviously that's just bad for the country, bad for the economy. But politically... Politically, for the president, the deal maker, the guy who's supposed to be here because uh, what he can do for the economy when the country turns into campaign mode, that's all you're going to be hearing about at that point. Look, I mean, the president came into office with a with a very aggressive agenda on trade, and you know, initially had a lot of support for renegotiating trade deals and taking a much tougher stance with China. He's has won support from you know unlikely allies, and so no, I, I do think there's been a lot of a lot of support on both sides of the aisle, you know, for reaching a new deal with China. The question is. Can you get that done with all the other trade balls up in the air, too? And it was always going to be the concern that if you didn't get the deal done soon enough in the first term, invariably, whoever's in office is going to get nervous that that is going to hurt consumers as we approach the next uh, the next election. And, and given you know the, well, much of the president's re-election message argument is that hey, re-elect me because the economy is doing well. You know, the U.S. has had solid economic growth. But if the economy goes south, then that, that, that sort of raises significant problems with his main message. David Shepardson, reporter for Reuters. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. For a lot of young people that there weren't they weren't given really good expectations of what work is going to look like. And we don't talk about it enough, which is that careers are marathons, not sprints. Joining us now is Tess Brigham, a psychotherapist and certified life coach based out of San Francisco. She's also a contributor to CNBC. Thanks for joining us, Tess. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to talk to you for a little bit of insight into why young people hate their jobs. You work with a lot of millennials specifically And they do struggle at work. Tell us a little bit about what's going on with them. There has been some recent research done um, about how engaged millennials are at work. And what they found was that 71% of millennials are not engaged at work, which is huge. And I had been noticing this when I've been working with my clients for a while now. And what I find is that the, you know, Technology is amazing and wonderful in so many different ways, but it's also making us feel like we have to be on and working 24-7. And it's really creating this imbalance for so many people. And I think that a lot of times, I don't think it's so much that they hate their jobs. It's just that so many young people are feeling completely burned out, completely disengaged with what the company's mission is, something that they felt really excited about right after school. And now I've been doing it for several years and feeling like, you know, I have such a long road ahead of me. Can I keep up at this pace? What are some of the top reasons for why they feel that they're not engaged at work? The main one, feeling burned out, the expectations of employers these days of companies where you should be always be on, always be available. We don't really have a lot of boundaries now with each other and time. For a lot of young people that there weren't 
they weren't given really good expectations of what work is going to look like. And we don't talk about it enough, which is that careers are marathons, not sprints. Where, where do you, and, I have a question. Where, where do you think mm-hmm. people get these expectations mixed up? Is it because the managers aren't giving them the proper uh, standards to, to go by? Or is this something further? Uh, you know, you always hear things about millennials being lazy and entitled uh-huh. and things like that. Is it more of a byproduct of that? Or is it really just the job is not really managing the expectations? I think it's a little bit of both. I do not by any means will ever say that millennials are lazy or entitled. I absolutely adore all of the clients that I work with. They are not lazy. They're incredibly hardworking and they are not entitled. I think that the problem is, is that no one really knows what work is going to be like until you get to work and until you really start it. And I think what's very hard is a lot of young people, they were conditioned to and told, hey, you know, if you work hard in high school, you'll get into a good college. If you work hard in college, you'll get a good job after college, and then you'll be happy. And so the expectation was set up that if I do everything that I'm supposed to do in high school and college, then I will go out and get this great job and it'll make me happy. And I don't think that they were properly told that, well, yeah, it's not exactly going to make you happy, that finding out exactly what your right job is, it takes time. We don't talk enough about the fact that it takes time to first figure out what it is that you really want to do. And then it takes some time to get really good at it. And then it takes some time to really, once you get good at it, really refine it. How do we get out of this mindset? How do we get people to stop saying, I hate my job? How do we, how do do they move forward beyond that? Yeah, well, it really does start with the mindset. And um, no matter what your situation is in terms of your job, if you walk in the doors thinking, I hate this place, I hate everybody, everyone's, you know, I can't stand this, it's going to be miserable. So everything (laughs) always, the buck always stops with ourselves. And so it's really figuring out, like, I have to survive this job. I have to pay my rent. I have to figure it out. So how do I show up for my job every day and get out of this headspace that I hate it? Because there's got to be something in this that I like. And so it's really starting with making the conscious choice for yourself to decide while this job might not be right for me and I want to look for another job. I have to find ways in which to enjoy it, even if it means that I take it hour by hour, day by day. And that's really where it starts. And then the second part is really spending some time with some self-reflection of what are these expectations that I've set up for myself? Am I looking around expecting to be promoted really quickly? Am I expecting to get handed a lot of projects that maybe I'm not qualified for. And if I want more responsibility in my work, if I want more from it, how do I get it? How do I find it? How do I advocate for myself? And if after all of that, you're still miserable, then yes, absolutely. You need to look for another job. And at the same time, don't beat yourself up because you took a job that you didn't like. Because no one tells us that a big part of the early part of your career is learning more about what you don't want than what you do want. And you are getting closer. You have not failed. You're just getting closer to closer to where you want to be and what's right for you. And and the last thing I just wanted to mention uh, briefly, if you're feeling angry, stressed, frustrated, things like this you know, lean back on your, uh, on your relationships with your friends and families and coworkers, even don't go on social media or internalize some of this anger and stress, because that'll just make it worse for you. Yes. Tess Brigham, psychotherapist and certified life coach based out of San Francisco contributor to CNBC. Thank you very much for joining us, Tess. Thank you so much.
That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.